Well, good evening. Um, my name's Ross Cranston, and I used to be here at the LSE, but now I do other things. And it's my pleasure to have a conversation this evening with Lord Mackay of Clash Fern. Now, you will know that he was the Lord Chancellor. Uh, he was the Lord Chancellor between 1987 and 1997, 10 years, which means that he was the uh, longest serving Lord Chancellor uh, in the 20th century with continuous service. Uh, as Lord Chancellor, he was head of the judiciary. So he was a judge. He sat in the House of Lords as a judge. He had been a judge before that, but we'll come to that later on. He was also a member of the Cabinet, and he sat in the House of Lords presiding, although I don't think they preside in the House of Lords, but he sat on the Woolsack in the House of Lords um, in its legislative capacity. Uh, now that no longer happens, because as a result of changes uh, under the Constitutional Reform Act, the Lord Chancellor is no longer the head of the judiciary, and the present Lord Chancellor does not sit in the House of Lords, but sits in the House of Commons. Um, now, uh, Lord Mackay had a very distinguished career. Uh, it goes without saying. And as I go through the career with him, and I'm not sure what he's going to say to some of these questions, um, it was meteoric, and I, I'm sure um, some of us are going to learn how to... Um, become uh, lawyers, uh, become QCs, or even become judges. Well, uh, can I start with your early life, Lord Mackay, because your uh, grandfather was a shepherd, your father was a railway signalman, um, and you became Lord Chancellor. <laughs> what can you say about your early background, your family circumstances, the sort of support that your family gave you, uh, your early years? Well, my grandfather, as you see on my father's side, uh, was a shepherd up in the northwest of Sutherland uh, in a place called Clash Fern, uh, which uh, you may or may not recognize uh, as uh, having retained a certain currency since. My, uh, he, they had quite a large family, uh, and obviously in order to live they had to spread and my father uh, came to Edinburgh and he did various things in Edinburgh but finally he uh, was on the Caledonian Railway uh, as a, a porter and signalman. Uh, and uh, my mother came from Caithness, her uh, father was a, a tenant farmer really, he was a shepherd also uh, in the early days and then they came down from the uh, moorlands into the slightly more um, arable part of Caithness uh, and that's where he had his farm. Uh, my mother married when she was quite young uh, and she was uh, in Thurzel in the uh, very northerly town. Her husband died very suddenly uh, and she uh, decided having uh, had that experience to move to Edinburgh. Uh, as a widow and it's there she met my father and they got married uh, and I was their only child. Uh, 
you'll appreciate that by the time I came on the scene, uh, they were getting on a bit uh, in life, and uh, so I uh, found myself as an only child uh, with uh, a couple that were uh, getting on. Uh, her, my mother's brother had uh, the farm in Caithness that her father uh, had worked, and uh, he uh, uh, was married and had a, a, a large family uh, and his wife died uh, when the youngest was born. Uh, the result was that he was very hard pressed and this was in the 1930s. We've heard a little bit about the 1930s in the last day or two uh, and uh, I think it was particularly hard uh, for uh, people in a small way uh, in farming at that time and my father and mother were keen to give him every help that they could so we were up there uh, as much as possible so I learned a lot about the elements of farming uh, and rural life in my early years. Uh, I, was, uh, I went to school in Edinburgh uh, in uh, ultimately George Herriot's in the senior school uh, and uh, from there uh, I went to Edinburgh University. Well, could let me yeah. just ask you a few questions about schooling. I mean, so there's no law in your family at all, no, 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 no connection with the, with the law. So you go to George Herriot's. What, that was in the last years of the war, was it? The same? Uh, it was, um, it, it, I was in Herriot's one year before the war broke out. Yes. And then uh, I was in Herriot's when the war broke out. And it, it, there were interesting developments then because, of course, uh, we weren't allowed to meet as a school. Uh, for the first few weeks of the war, uh, we went to teachers' houses in small groups uh, until they got the air raid shelters built in the school playground. Uh, and after that was done, the school met in two shifts uh, because they didn't have enough room in the uh, air raid shelters for the whole school because if they had, they would have covered the whole playground. So they wanted a little bit of space for the uh, playground as well as the shelters. So the school was in two shifts for a while and then they gradually were able to get uh, the accommodation in the shelters uh, so that the whole school met yeah. together, so all during the war until 1944-45. Uh, well, I left uh, in 1944. Uh, it was uh, wartime, really. Yes, yes. What, at school, what sort of subjects did you especially like or do well in? Uh, mathematics. And, Math uh, yes. and, uh, I, I did quite well in languages, too, but uh, mm. mathematics was really the... Yes. Subject so, I like best. So you then go to Edinburgh University and you read mathematics. That's right. Mathematics and uh, so-called natural philosophy, which was uh, the Edinburgh name for physics, really, Na or particularly mathematical physics, mm. uh, the, the applied maths yes. type of physics. Yes. You get a first-class degree in mathematics and natural philosophy, and so you then become a lecturer. Yes. Not in law, but in mathematics. That's right. That's in St. Uh, Andrews. That, that, that uh, takes a little bit of explanation. Uh, in 1947, uh, I, with two others from our class in Edinburgh, went up to Cambridge to sit the scholarship examination. Uh, the Edinburgh University people were keen that we should do that. And in these days, there were three groups of colleges uh, running uh, competitions uh, for scholarships mm. uh, and only one person over 19 was eligible in each group and therefore uh, the, our people 
decided to send each of us to one of the groups. Uh, and I'm glad to say that that uh, tactic uh, seemed to work. Because this was, all three this of wasn't seen as treachery by a Scot to go south of the border to Cambridge. This was just accepted. Uh, yes, I, I think the Scots have always been fairly well known for travelling from Scotland. Uh, I think Dr Johnson had something to say about that, <laughs> uh, uh, perhaps not in the most uh, appreciative terms. But, um, yeah, it was perfectly reasonable, and the, uh, the people that sent us mm. came from Cambridge in the first instance, yeah. so they were pretty keen yeah. to send but us But you didn't there. take up that position at that stage, did you? you no, but no because, because uh, the uh, National Service was on, and mm. the Joint Recruiting Board was operating, and the people were coming back from the war mm. uh, demobilized, and there was a great scarcity of lectures in mathematics. And two of us, uh, George Mackey, who had been given a scholarship at Christ, and I, who had one at Trinity, were given, were uh, really sent to St Andrews for me and Dundee for him, uh, where they had vacancies. And uh, I found myself teaching uh, people uh, who are a good deal older than me, uh, who uh, were uh, studying mathematics and uh, at various stages of it, a time in life when uh, most people would have already done uh, what we were teaching them. Mm. You then, a couple of years after that, you, I think you were there two years, were you not? That's right. You then took up that offer to go to uh, Trinity yes. in Cambridge, and you studied more mathematics. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, I came you, you across... Did a degree, I think, there, did yes, you? Yes, I came across mm. other uh, students of mathematics, including people like Michael Atiyah, uh, and oh. it convinced me quite quickly that, uh, you know, life as a academic mathematician was possibly not my forte. Uh, and so I uh, began to wonder, and I'd gone in... Why was that? Because you... Uh, I think I had gone into the court... I was up on holiday <coughs> in Edinburgh, and I'd gone into the courts for the first time in my life. I'd never been in a law court in my life until then. And I went in uh, to a debate just as it happened, that was going on with uh, one of the very distinguished lawyers who later became the Lord President of the Court of Session taking part in the debate. And I realised, having heard this, that uh, this wasn't all that different. The analysis you required wasn't all that different from the sort of thing I'd been accustomed to in mathematics. And I thought, well, if I'm looking for something else to do, uh, this is something I should consider. Mm. But you could have gone back to St Andrews. Oh yes, I could have done. Uh, but you decided not to. No. But by this time, I think you're about 25. Uh, uh, I was. Uh, yes, yes, I would have been about that. Yes, and you then—it's complete career change, as it were. You've walked into this debate, and you decide you're going to become a lawyer. Yeah. Well, it—it it, it was sort of gradual. Uh, oh. We went to the courts in Cambridge as well. We, we went to listen to the. Uh, Assize. They used to, the Assize judges stayed in Trinity in these days. I think they may still do, except the Assize no longer, but uh, Crown Court judges who come to Cambridge, if they're members of the High Court, may stay there. You, you may find this your pleasant experience of staying in Trinity. Anyway, they used to come and trumpeters and all the rest of it. And so we used to go along and see what they were doing. Uh, Michael Atia, John Porky and myself, uh, who are good friends, we went along and uh, it sort of uh, gradually encouraged me to think that possibly mm. the law might suit me mm. quite well. Yes. Of course, some of the people here will know that Michael Atiyah's brother was Patrick Atiyah, who Patrick, yes. wrote various books in law. Yes. 
And Michael Thiel himself is one of the leading mm. mathematicians yes. of the world. Yes, yes. Well, so how do you fund this then? You're, go, you're going to go back and study law. You studied law at Edinburgh over a couple of years. How, how do you, you become a student again? Uh, well, I... Um, I, or did you teach part-time? No, I, did, I didn't teach part-time at that stage. And you didn't, in my time, uh, you didn't get paid when you were deviling. I don't know if you still do. I don't think you do. Uh, and uh, there was a very, very modest payment by the firm of, from the firm of solicitors that I went to first. But I, I uh, had learned to live fairly economically. Uh, and uh, I had, uh, therefore the remains of my salary from two years as a university lecturer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, in these days, university lecturer salaries were not great. 450 was my salary the first year and 550 the second year. But that was quite a lot of money as against uh, mm -hmm. uh, many other walks of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to keep, and of course I stayed at, when I was um, studying uh, law, I stayed at home. Uh, and. Uh, Again, we lived pretty economically, and the result was that I was able to, to carry on and do that. And of course, for mathematics, I uh, mm. uh, was uh, given the scholarship that uh, you referred to. I think uh, you've touched on one aspect of the Scottish system, which is diff different from here, in that advocates, in other words, barristers, will work with solicitors in the Scottish system to a greater extent. They might, uh, rather than simply going straight to the bar, they might do some time with... Yes, in, in my day it was regarded as quite a good training to have two years in the solicitor's office uh, at the same time as you were doing lectures. So you, you had a lecture in the morning at 9 o'clock, you went down from the lecture to the office at 10 o'clock, and then you had in the office till 4 o'clock, then you had a lecture from 4 to 5 and 5 to 6. And so uh, you, you learnt the law as a practical subject at the same time as working in a solicitor's office, putting it into practice. Mm. How, did, how did you get your job with the solicitor's office? Had you just applied? I mean, you, you know many students these days find it very difficult to get traineeships and so on here with well, law I, firms. I mean, did you just... Uh, I just... Uh, I think a cousin of mine uh, worked for, a fir worked for a, an insurance company uh, of which Sir Ernest Wedderburn happened to be the legal advisor, and he asked him if uh, he would uh, like to, you know, if he would be willing to see me. And um, I went along to see Sir Ernest Wedderburn, and as it happened, uh, Sir Ernest Wedderburn's brother was a quite a distinguished mathematician, algebraist, and I had done quite a lot of work in the area in which he had worked. Mm. And of course, uh, when Sir Ernest Wedderburn, he, who was a scientist himself, He'd done, during the First World War, he did uh, extensive studies on uh, the sound waves in, in water, uh, which was important from the point of view of sonar later and all that. Uh, but uh, the fact that I had been interested in the work that his brother had done uh, seemed to be somewhat of a commendation. That's good. So you, start, you, you then uh, uh, graduate in law. I think by this time you're 28, so yeah. it was quite late. Uh, I think I think I actually graduated just before I became 20. I think I think I think <laughs> yes. Um, so you then do you then immediately go to become an advocate, yes. a, a barrister, in yeah. our terms. So the system in in Scotland is that you, uh, you they 
didn't have the sort of chamber system that you have here. You had a, a spot in the library, I think, in, yeah, in Parliament uh, House, as it's called. Which is, yes, uh, that's uh, right. You worked in the library. You didn't require to have uh, a place otherwise except to receive papers. They had, they had uh, assuming you got any at all, uh, you had to have a place to which these could be delivered. Hmm. Uh, and th at the time when I went there, which is now uh, well in the past, it had to be in a certain the, the new town of Edinburgh. So you had to get a, a, a post box or something of the kind and a place where, if necessary, you could hold meetings. <coughs> so I was able to join what in many ways looked like a chambers. Um, the people, the seniors, there were two seniors in it and some juniors uh, who used these rooms, but they didn't have any... Um, administrative function together. The only thing they, they had in common was that they used these rooms. Mm. And so uh, uh, I was able to do that in, uh, in, the, new, in the new town. Mm. Uh, and that was with a minimum of expense. I mean, what, how did you find it initially? Did, you, did the work come flooding in or was it slow? And what sort of work was it? Well, um, the... the uh, Work didn't come in all that fast. I, I remember reading Lord Macmillan's life, uh, and he said that when he was uh, an advocate at the beginning, he decided to stay in Edinburgh uh, during the summer vacation in order that he might pick up some crumbs from the tables of his absent brethren. Uh, and I reckon that if that was good enough for him, and he became a very distinguished lawyer, it was good enough for me. So I stayed at home. Uh, religiously during that first summer after I was called. But I regret to say that the telephone didn't ring very often. Uh, but what we did have was criminal cases that were not paid. Uh, in these days, counsel for the poor in criminal cases didn't get paid unless your client happened to have money, which uh, was a rare event indeed. Uh, they, there was a, a fund to pay your expenses because most of these cases were in Glasgow not all, most of them were in Glasgow uh, so you got your hand into or your uh, voice in or whatever way you like to express it uh, you got a chance to stand up in court defending these people most of them didn't have much of a defence uh, but uh, they uh, uh, needed somebody to represent them mm -hmm. uh, and you did that, you didn't get paid for it you got experience and of course sometimes uh, it drew you to the attention of a solicitor. I, I had an interesting experience uh, of that kind. A solicitor in Dumbarton was solicitor for the poor in Dumbarton and he had uh, a, a case that he instructed me in. I happened to be uh, uh, the one that was selected for his case. And uh, he had quite a big practice in the divorce business in these days, a very uh, straightforward kind of uh, business it was. Uh, you could almost be ashamed of taking money for the sort of work it was, but anyway, that's the way it was. There was quite a lot of that work going along in the court of session in these days, undefended divorces. He had quite a big practice in that. Now, this case that he had involved two people uh, whom I, I shall call A and B. Uh, and a and B were accused together of various offences. But of course they had different criminal records. And uh, they sent me the service copy 
of the indictments that had been served on these two people. Now, he received his indictment, his service copy of the indictment, and inside was a notice of previous convictions addressed to B. So A got this one, and conversely, B's indictment had in it a, a notice of previous convictions addressed to A. So I, having noticed this, thought, well, let's see what happens. Uh, the two gentlemen were acquitted on the first charge. There were two charges. They were acquitted on the first charge, which was about stealing uh, telegraph wires from the uh, railway that runs at the back of Clyde Bank. Uh, but the second one was helping themselves off a boat that had been beached uh, on the Holy Loch. Uh, and uh, that was more difficult because they were actually found with the material uh, on them and it was identified as coming from this boat and the explanations that they had for it were not uh, particularly cogent. Uh, so uh, they were convicted on the second charge having uh, been acquitted on the first as a, with a Scottish verdict of not proven which was well justified in the circumstances. So when the sentence came, the advocate deputy got up and said they both got long strings of previous conviction. So the judge, fortunately for me, the judge was Lord Walker, who was a real technician uh, in the sense that technical points were really meat and drink to him. So I got up and I said to him that uh, they hadn't served a proper uh, notice of previous convictions on A, because the notice that he got referred to B, which was nothing to do with him, and similarly. And so uh, Lord Walker said, yes, absolutely right. Um, that's, a, that's a sound point. I shall have to treat them both as first offenders. And in the High Court, they got three months uh, imprisonment. Now, this, uh, this, as you can imagine, uh, this event greatly impressed the solicitor. And he thought, uh, and I got his uh, undefended divorce work after that, which was quite a good start. Mm -hmm. Within 10 years, you're a QC, which is extraordinary. Um, how do you do that? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I acquired... I mean, what, what sort of work had you built up? I mean, obviously... Oh, uh, uh, also, I mean, that, this is the great thing about the Scottish bar as it was then. Oh, everything's changing, and uh, Scotland's no, maybe, maybe slower in changing, but it's certainly changing and quite fast now. Uh, but in these days, uh, when I went to the bar, uh, you were apt to get any kind of work. Um, there wasn't the same degree of specialisation that there is now. And I mean, during my career, uh, I was able to say when I arrived here that I had done at least one important case in every area of specialisation that there is in England. Uh, and uh, later on in my life, after I became a silk, people used to come up sometimes to get advice about tax or something and were told I was doing a criminal case in Glasgow and they could hardly believe it. Uh, so uh, it was a very general practice. Uh, a lot of it was reparation in these days, but there was a lot of other uh, what you might call chancery work. And I did a tremendous amount of rating because as it happened, they changed the rating system just about the time I went to the bar. Uh, and having been a mathematician, they thought, you know, the sisters thought, well, 
uh, if it's a question of counting, you should be able to count. Uh, that was a, not necessarily a, a sound uh, you, you deduction, have, but uh, it was a fact. Yeah, you uh, still have your name on a rating book, I think. I did, you? yes. I wrote yes. Uh, Armour on Valuation yeah. for Rating along with one of yes. Uh, but we, I got a lot of practice in that area. And there's just one thing about that that I uh, would quite like to emphasize. In these days, appeals from the rating committee, the local rating committee, went to the Valuation Appeal Court. And these were three senior judges who were the same judges from month to month. And uh, one of them was from the first division of the, that's one of the Appeal Court judges, uh, the other one was from the second division, the other branch of the Court of Appeal, and the other was a senior puny judge. And they were absolutely, completely clear about the principles of valuation for rating. And once I got to know them, uh, I could, once I, the facts of a case were known, and the procedure was a stated case from the committee, so the facts were there. Once the case was stated by a committee, uh, if the assessor or the, uh, the ratepayer came to me, I could tell them with almost 100% confidence what the result would be in the Court of Appeal. Because these people, were, these judges, were so precisely geared to the principles of the matter. And of course, people began to think, well, you know, if we, if we get an advice of that kind, we can go ahead. And uh, it, it, that gave me a, quite a big practice, I must say. Yes. You ultimately um, become the, what's called the dean of the faculty. In other words, in England, it would be called the chairman of the bar. So you're regarded as the leader of the bar. Um, uh, that, that was an elected position, yeah, I, I yeah, assume. Yeah. So you're, you obviously have the support of your colleagues. Um, you've got this very big practice, including rating, where mathematics comes into it. And then all of a sudden, um, you're uh, invited by uh, Mrs. Thatcher to be one of her law officers. You become the Lord Advocate. Uh, now, uh, that system has changed as well, of course, hasn't it? Because that used to be a position uh, you were, as a Lord Advocate, you were the Minister of the UK Government, along with the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, and there was the Solicitor General for Scotland, yes. so they, they, they were the four law officers. Um, but you become the Lord Advocate. Now, there are various stories about this. One story is that when you were invited by Mrs. Thatcher to become the Lord Advocate, you weren't a member of the Conservative Party. That story happens to be true. <laughs> but I, I was, I mean, as Dean of Faculty, and the Dean of Faculty is a s slightly different in origin from the Chairman of the Bar. For one thing, it's quite an elderly office, and it, it's m molded on the batonnier of uh, the European Bars. And in fact, the uh, dean carries a baton, although, uh, so he's the equivalent of the batonnier. And once elected dean, there was an annual re-election, but once you were elected, uh, in my time, you were expected to continue until you either retired from practice or went on the bench. Uh, uh, the dean was usually regarded as a pretty um, likely candidate for the bench after a certain time. Uh, and. Uh, 
so it, it is a it is a, a little different uh, from the chairman of the bar. That's changed now too because the the, the dean represents the faculty, or uh, he, he's a member of faculty set into the appointments commission, and obviously it would be awkward uh, if he continued as mm. dean indefinitely. So they tend to resign now after about three years. But that again is a different system, mm. and the dean of faculty is recognised in court. I don't think the chairman of the bar is called on as chairman to speak. If he's in court, I, I may be wrong about no, this, but I don't I, think so. I think no, he's I think called right, Mr. Yes, whatever he is. Because the attorney here would be the That's leader right. of the bar, yes. Whereas uh, in mm. Scotland, the dean of faculty was addressed in that way, and when I came to London sometimes, as I did to a, a pure court, uh, to the House mm. of Lords, uh, the judges were instructed to offer me the same yes. dignity, as it were. Yes. Incidentally, I interviewed Lord Bingham in this sort of um, situation, I think sometime last year, and he told me a lovely story about you before Lord Reed in the House of Lords, um, how you took the measure of Lord Reed and knew not to interrupt too much. But anyhow, that's another story. Can I just go back to the appointment by Mrs. Thatcher? So you're not a member of the Conservative Party. All of a sudden, you're rung up, I imagine, and you're asked to be Lord Advocate. Now, uh, what happened was that uh, somebody from the office rang up our home on the Monday morning. Uh, funny thing uh, happened to me. Uh, we, Beth, my wife and I were in Marks and Spencers on the Friday afternoon uh, of the after the election. And uh, I met there a colleague, and he said to me, I hear you're going to be the Lord Advocate. Well, I said, I haven't heard that and I would think that they'll know by now who they want to have. Anyway, that was just a seed in my, that he, he planted in my mind. And on Monday morning, somebody from Downing Street rang up and said, the prime is, is James Mackay there? And my wife said, yes. And he said, well, Mrs. Thatcher would like to speak to him in a few minutes, or the Prime Minister, I should say. The Prime Minister would like to speak to him in about 10 minutes. Would that be all right? And she said, yes, all right. And in due course, the mm. famous voice came on the telephone. Mm. It's said that one of the reasons that you were appointed is that the uh, uh, Nicholas Fairburn, who was, the, who was a QC and an MP and a, Scot a Scottish MP, was too controversial to be appointed, and the senior judge in Scotland had intervened. I mean, do you know whether that's true or not? I don't think it is true. Um, I think Mrs Thatcher knew her colleagues without the help of Scottish judges to assist her. Uh, I think she knew exactly what the position was. Uh, and uh, I think she felt, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I think she, I mean, uh, Nicholas Fairbairn, whom uh, maybe some of you knew, uh, was uh, a very... Uh, Flamboyant. Yeah, flamboyant and, and distinguished uh, person. He had a lot of interest. He was a good painter. And I don't mean a house painter, I mean a, an artist. And um, he, he was a very, he did a lot of criminal trials and that kind of thing. So he had quite an amour propre. And it would never do for her to do something that would make him resign or something like that. That would be a very bad start. Because her position in Scotland wasn't all that great, although she had far more MPs then in Scotland than the Conservative Party has now. 
uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, uh, I think she knew what, what mm. she wanted. Uh, if she could get it, she could, wanted somebody whom Nicholas Fairbairn would pre prepare to regard as quite his senior and be prepared to work with. Mm. And uh, as it turned out, Nicholas Fairbairn was willing to work with me. Yes, he became the Solicitor General for Scotland. Yes, that's right. So you're, you're a law officer, um, you're a member of the government. Um, did you mainly do advisory and advocacy in that role? Was there any particular I did, aspect I did, of... I did quite a lot of um, advisory work. Uh, and I also represented the Crown in various cases. And the attorney, as you may recall, uh, asked me to represent the Crown in English cases. Mm. I had already represented uh, insurance companies when I was dean of faculty. The, in these days, the, uh, when the case came to the House of Lords, uh, a Scottish advocate was, had a right of audience just as much as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Normally, it was the other way around, of course. English barristers were brought in to Scottish appeals, mm -hmm. but on this particular occasion, it happened to be the other way around. And I think I was the first Scottish leader to lead in an English appeal for some time when I did the 1970 Miller against Whitworth Street Estates uh, case, which was technically an English appeal, but had a Scottish basis. Uh, but then I did the Rockware Glass, McShannon and Rockware Glass, which was a purely English case, although again Scotland was involved. Uh, I represented uh, uh, Rockware Glass in that case. And then when uh, I became Lord Advocate, uh, Michael Havers asked me to do uh, a number of, Scottish, of English appeals in the House of Lords. Yes. I saw, I, I've seen your name in a lot of cases involving what was it called? Employment? There was a special employment tax. Yes, yes, that's right. That was the ordinary. Uh, uh, that was a, uh, that's the time I had uh, Lord Bingham as my... That's junior. right, yes, yes. yes. Uh, it was an interesting, uh, that was an interesting uh, yeah. combination. Yes. Can, can I just go on? Um, in 1984, so you're, you're Lord Advocate, um, can I ask, did you, did you join the Conservative Party? Yes, oh yes, I did. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, one of my predecessors as Lord Advocate had done a Digby Jones and decided that he wasn't going to join oh. the, the party. Mm. And uh, that was perfectly all right for the Lord Advocate. Mm. But I felt, I mean, I had, mm. I had, my pupil master had been a Conservative candidate and I'd been involved with him and helped. Mm. Uh, who, who was that? But I hadn't actually joined the party. Mm. Uh, but I felt perfectly, I mean, my, my convictions yeah. such as they were, uh, were in that sort of general direction, yes. so I was perfectly willing to do that. Yes. So you're Lord Advocate, and then in 1984 you become a judge in Scotland, a Scottish yes. judge. Yes. Why did you make the change? Um, well, I felt five years is just about long enough, and uh, there was mm. a vacancy. And uh, George Younger, who was the Secretary of State, was willing to nominate me to uh, the, the Prime Minister and to the Queen for mm. that purpose. So I, I decided that would be a good idea, so I went. It, I mean, there is a story that says you were expecting to be appointed to the House of Lords in any event. Is, did you expect that? Or? Not at all. No. Uh, not at all. I um, uh, was uh, of the view that you know, five years was enough, and there was a vacancy in the Court of Session, and I wanted to take that. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what uh, was likely to happen thereafter, 
uh, and uh, I had no uh, real uh, notion of what my future might be. Certainly not at all. No. So you sit as a, ju a general judge, yes. um, doing crime, civil. And criminal. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, within a year or so, you're then appointed um, to the House of Lords yes. as a law lord. Yes. Do you know what the background to that was? No. Because no, again, I, that was very, very quick. I, I, I don't know um, at all. I, I, sus I, mean, I don't know really. I, I know that when I became Lord Chancellor, I con con uh, consulted the law lords on who we should appoint. Mm. Uh, and whether that's what they did, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, it's rather funny. I got a letter. A letter was sent to me uh, from uh, Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher, uh, Downing Street to my home in Edinburgh and I never got that letter yet. Mm. Uh, after a month I got a, a copy letter with a letter inside it from the, one of the officials in Downing Street to say that they'd sent this letter a month ago and they wondered that I wasn't uh, going to reply. Mm. So I <laughs> said the reason for that is that I never got the letter. Mm. Uh, and uh, just exactly what was behind it all I don't know. I was approached by the Lord Advocate uh, before the letter came, before the, before the, I think before the first letter was mm. sent, to see whether I'd be willing to go to mm. London. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, I said I would. Yes. Have, do, have you ever hesitated when you've been offered these positions? I mean, you're offered the Lord Advocate, the position of the Lord Advocate, you're, you're offered the judgeship in Scotland, you're offered appointment to the House of Lords. I mean, what, just in terms of your reaction? Do you well, just uh, relish the new challenge? Or, yes, or, I think, hmm. uh, you know, if you're op offered a job like that, uh, uh, it's difficult to uh, do anything else, to, to my mind. I think if I had known more about uh, what the, the fiscal consequences of becoming Lord Advocate were, I might have hesitated a little longer, but as it was, I felt, well, this is a you know, this is something different, and uh, I, I didn't hesitate at all. I hesitated a little bit more uh, about the Lord Chancellorship, which I shall tell you about in a minute. Well, that was two years later. I mean, you sit in the House of Lords. Who, who, the senior law lord at that time was uh, Lord Bridge, was it? Uh, well, it was uh, Lord Scarman and Lord Keith. Uh, Lord and, Keith, sorry, yes. yes. Uh, lord Keith, mm. and then when Lord Scarman retired, it was Keith and Bridge. Yes, yes. And did you enjoy that experience yes, as an ordinary yes, law lord? Yes, I did. Very mm. interesting and uh, quite uh, very interesting indeed. I mean, I, uh, it's it's quite uh, revealing how differences can arise and how they can be resolved in a team of five. Mm. As the junior lord lord, you would have been the first to speak, which yes, is the practice. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, actually, uh, that's right. The junior law, law lord speaks first. And I was a junior for a whole term. Uh, and uh, at the end of that term, Lord uh, Ackner, Lord Oliver, uh, and Lord Goff were appointed, all junior to me. So I never had to be the first again after mm -hmm. that. Quite extraordinary. So t two years later, you're then invited to become Lord Chancellor. Yeah. So you, hes you say you hesitated. Yeah, well, um, I, I was... Uh, I, I had been sitting in court during the day, and there was a, a case um, debate going on about extradition uh, in the chamber. 
And I went down to, after, the, after our own business was finished to listen to this because I was rather interested. I had done a, an opinion on extradition uh, some time before, so I was quite interested in extradition. And um, I mean, an opinion as a, a member of the House of Lords on extradition. Uh, and uh, I was interested in the debate. And I went down and uh, I was sitting there at about half past four. Uh, I got a note saying that uh, from the Lord President, who was Lord Whitelaw, saying that the Prime Minister's uh, private secretary wanted to speak to me on the telephone, so I went out and phoned. And he, he told me that uh, Mrs Thatcher would like to see me at five o'clock. And I had arranged with Robert Goff, because uh, it was the setting up of the Pegasus Trust, mm. and I was uh, one of those who was trying to set this up with Robert Goff, and we were to have a meeting at five o'clock. So I had to tell Robert Goff that, sorry, I wouldn't be able to be with him at five o'clock uh, because I'd been asked to go to Downing Street. But I said I assumed that it was some inquiry or something that she wanted done. I didn't have any... Because I'd seen Michael... Michael Havers was the Lord Chancellor. Yeah. Mm. And I'd see, he'd been ill. He'd been mm. off ill. Mm. But I'd seen him on the previous Thursday and I had quite a chat with him. And he said he was, you know, he was completely restored to health and that. Mm. So I had no... Uh, never dawned on me that there was a vacancy in that mm. particular department. Mm. Uh, so anyway, off I went uh, at five o'clock and uh, I was ushered into the presence and uh, asked to sit down, which was very uh, interesting. And then she said, uh, we would like you to be the Lord Chancellor. Lord Havers has not been well enough and he's attended his, he wants to resign. Uh, so, uh, I said one or two things, but one of the things I said was that, uh, well, you know better than I that if you have a position of that kind, it affects your family, so I would like to ask my wife. Mm. Certainly, she said, there's a telephone uh, at the end of the table. Uh, so uh, I uh, put the Downing Street operator on with a number and uh, telephoned to Edinburgh where my wife was. And my wife wasn't in. Uh, so I said, I'm sorry, she's not there. She said, when will she come back? I said, I don't know. Uh, your guess would be as good as mine. Uh, so anyway, she said, you'll let us know as soon as possible because I'm very anxious to put the two, two facts out at the same time uh, on the 7 o'clock news. This was already about 20 past 5, I suppose. Mm. So I uh, kept anxiously phoning to Edinburgh uh, and eventually Beck came home and I put this proposition to her and uh, she said, well, I don't think you can refuse, which was pretty much what I felt myself. So uh, I telephoned back to the private secretary. He said, I can't take that message, he said. I'll have to get you to speak to the prime minister. So I duly conveyed that uh, message to the prime minister and as you know, the announcement was on the news at seven o'clock. Mm -hmm. It was as quick as that. Mm -hmm. It was quite, uh, quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. So you, you become Lord Chancellor and you're there for 10 years. Now, possibly you attracted most publicity when you were in that job because of something that had nothing to do with the job. And it goes back to your religion because you attended a funeral, a, 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 a mass and funeral of a... I think it was Lord Wheatley, was it? No, but it was Lord Russell of Killowen, first of all, uh -huh. in Westminster Cathedral. 
Yes. And that was that uh, appeared in one of the paper, the Daily Telegraph. I don't know of all that appeared at the mm. uh, memorial service mm. for Lord Russell of Killow. And then, uh, you know, I uh, addressed him on many mm. occasions, mm. and I had a great respect for him, and I felt mm. right to attend his uh, memorial service. I didn't, of course, take any part in the actual yeah. uh, mass or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, this appeared in the paper and uh, mm -hmm. the authorities of the Fusitian church eventually decided that this wasn't incompatible with being an elder in the church, so uh, mm -hmm. we parted company. Yes. Uh, that, as I say, attracted a lot of publicity. Um, you'd left the church, the Free Pres Presbyterian Church. A lot of people, I think, left with you, and ultimately... And ultimately, I think, I think it's true to say that it wasn't just me. They, they, were, they had a problem with a, a minister who was the chairman of the local education committee in the Highlands, and they had representatives there from different churches, including a priest, and he had asked the priest to pray at the beginning of one of the meetings, I think they, you know it went round. It was a kind of uh, uh, option to ask whoever was there, uh, and he asked the priest, and this got reported. And again, there was a row about that. The same sort of thing. It was uh, and just almost at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, I didn't take any part. Once I, uh, I, I they dealt with it the first court, I didn't appeal or anything. I just left it, uh, and. Uh, it was nothing to do with me, really. I didn't want to take anything further to do with it. But uh, his, he and his supporters and other people who didn't like what was happening decided to do, what, as you said, to separate. And I decided to go along, to, I, I, I tend to them. Mm -hmm. We haven't got much more time. Can I just ask you a few things about when you were Lord Chancellor? Um, first of all, there was and this caused enormous controversy with the English bar. Um, you introduced what was ultimately the Court and Legal Services Act, which allowed, for example, solicitors to have rights of audience. Um, you opened up the conveyancing market so that conveyancing was no longer restricted to solicitors. Um, that act also, for, from the point of view of legal academics created a council of legal education. So a lot of reforms, but they were very, very controversial. And um, one of the LSE colleagues uh, was witness to a blazing row between you and the then Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. So very controversial reforms, although I guess looking back, they don't seem to be all that uh, controversial now. They're, they're accepted. but. Um, I mean, do you want to say anything about that, uh, the motivation for them? It was sort of introducing, to some extent, market principles into the profession. Well, uh, uh, I regarded it as introducing into the profession the logic of principle. Uh, I mean, I couldn't see why a person should be given a right of audience on the basis of carrying a particular name. Uh, it, it's the qualification, it's the uh, training and qualification that seemed to me to be important. And as you know, th there was quite a background to all of this. Um, the bar 
and the uh, Law Society had disputed about rights of audience very, very much. And a committee was set up under Lady Maher uh, to uh, consider this. Six uh, barristers and six solicitors uh, with some independence. Uh, and the hope was that this would be resolved. Well, uh, when I became Lord Chancellor, there had been already an inquiry by a committee, subcommittee of the Cabinet uh, about this, and Michael Hebers had written a paper which they, I think it would be fair to say, uh, didn't care for. Uh, and when I came, I had to address myself to this uh, point as well. Uh, and uh, when I looked at this, I thought that the right thing to do was, as I say, to look at it from the point of view of principle and say that it depends on what qualifications you have, uh, what you can do. So uh, I, I said, on the other hand, my committee is sitting. If they can agree this between the bar and the solicitors, uh, that's the best answer. And therefore, we shouldn't do anything at all as a government until we saw what would happen. Well, as you know, what happened was the Mark Committee uh, wanted to give rights of audience to solicitors uh, except for the barrister members. So it, was, it, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a particularly attractive result from the point of view of the bar. They were seen to be defending this. Uh, and uh, the point that I made and made again and again uh, was that it depends on your training and qualifications. Uh, and therefore, I believed that the right thing to do was to make right of audience in the courts available to solicitors who were willing to take the necessary training to f fit them for addressing the court. The mere fact they weren't called barristers didn't seem to me to matter if they had the right training uh, and background to uh, safely deal with matters in the higher courts. Uh, and that's what ultimately prevailed, and we had these qualifications. Now, as you know, uh, when uh, after, after my retiral, uh, the Lord Chancellor decided that uh, the rights of audience would be automatic. Uh, I don't think it has been uh, taken up universally by solicitors, uh, but that's the reason that I went for qualifications. Mm. I think that's the principle of the matter, and the same for convincing. Do you, do you think, though, that it was, in a way, easier for you to do this because you were a Scot from outside the English profession and therefore you either didn't have the baggage or you didn't have the uh, inhibitions that an English Lord well, Chancellor would have? Or, or, or maybe it goes back to the fact that you spent some time as a solicitor, which was the Scottish tradition, whereas here the separation is uh, very spent, definite. I spent time in the solicitor's office. Mm. Uh, I never qualified yes, as a solicitor, but Sorry. I spent mm. time in the solicitor's office, and I did understand a bit about that, but of course others had done that too. Uh, I think that um, you know there, there was a certain amount of pressure for something to happen. Uh, this dispute had arisen. Uh, and uh, when I became Lord Advocate, the Inner Temple kindly made me an honorary bencher almost immediately. So I had an affiliation with the English Bar from that time. Uh, and the traditions of the Bar and everything about them uh, were pretty uh, much part of my background values and everything. So I, I really found myself having to address this problem of a dispute 
between the law society, the leading uh, representative of uh, solicitors in the whole of uh, England and Wales and the Bar of England and Wales. And I, I felt strongly that that was a rather sad situation, that they couldn't, I mean, uh, advising other people, they couldn't advise themselves to sort this out. Uh, and I thought that was a pity, and I had hoped that the Mar Committee would sort it out. Mm. But as you know, the, the way that it came out from the Mar Committee, uh, it was, if anything, uh, worse than uh, not having one at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I felt then that it was right. And uh, there was, as I say, already some uh, desire in the uh, government to look into this matter anyway. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't think it made... Much, I felt just as much... Uh, the pressure of the bar on me uh, mm. as if I had been a member of the bar. I mean, I, I hated the idea of fighting with them. On the other hand, I felt that, um, you know, I was on reasonably good ground. And I think if you uh, take time to look at the green papers that we put out, which caused a terrific furore, mm. nearly everything that was said there has actually happened in the 20 years, uh, it's not quite 20 years yet since the 19, 19, 1989, Burns night in 1989 they came out as it happens and so it's not quite 20 years but uh, most of the things that were thought of then have yeah. happened. Yes. Just, um, you also as head of the judiciary appointed judges and you made some very innovative appointments if I could say that. Uh, I mean at the very high level you appointed people like uh, Lord Bingham, Lord Wolfe, uh, you made, you've appointed an academic uh, who is now a member of the House of Lords, Brenda Hale. You appointed her as a family judge. You appointed controversial or people who might be regarded as controversial like Stephen Sedley, uh, you know, a, a former member of the Communist Party. And so, again, do you think coming from the outside you could be more innovative or...? Well, I, I, I felt the principle is that you try to appoint the best people available. And I had very little doubt as to who were the best people available uh, on these occasions uh, to deal with the various types of appointment. I mean, uh, Stephen Sedley, for example, uh, subject of um, rather acid comment from time to time in the Daily Mail. Uh, well. You know as well as I that uh, he's a very distinguished Lord Justice. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, it's a question of merit, as it seems to me. And uh, I was not going to be dissuaded from doing what I thought was right from the point of view of merit by kind of uh, ad hoc stuff of that sort. Like, I mean, you, uh, were, you were lobbied, I assume, by people who didn't want you to make certain appointments. Uh, I don't think uh, many people lobbied me about appointments at all. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I don't think, I, I can't, uh, just answering your question directly, uh, I can't think of anybody lobbying me about judicial appointments uh, except in favour, perhaps, of particular individuals. I can remember now, as I think about it, one or two mm. who... Uh, advocated that some particular person uh, should be appointed whom we hadn't as yet appointed and I looked very carefully at such people uh, and uh, concluded whether they should be appointed or not. Mm -hmm. You sat as a judge as I said earlier. Yeah. Um, that of course has now fallen by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean it, 
you had the Minister of Responsibilities, as I said before, you were sitting in the legislature, you had time to sit as a judge. Uh, well, I, I made time. I mean, hmm. my, my, my uh, training basically was to be a judge. I wasn't trained as a politician. If you can be so trained, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, I wasn't trained as a politician, and uh, I, I, my real qualification uh, for being there was my legal and judicial qualifications. And therefore, I felt that that's what I should do, and I certainly enjoyed it, and we had some quite interesting cases, uh, and uh, on the whole, very little dissent. And you sat in cases which were purely about English criminal law, for example. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Uh, well, uh, I mean, that's uh, Scottish judges have done that over the years. Mm. Lord Reed sat in many uh, of them, and uh, I mean, it's uh, one of the things that puzzles me, uh, and it may puzzle some people here, is that uh, judges from the Chancery Division do not sit in the Criminal Division of the Court of Appeal and never have, to my knowledge, except possibly a way back long time ago in the mists of history. But when they come to the House of Lords, mm. judges from the Chancery Division take part in criminal cases uh, and sometimes quite uh, strongly take part. Uh, and I, I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, the, the fresh minds coming to deal with uh, points of criminal law, because otherwise they tend to become rather technical, and uh, English criminal law is not particularly devoid of technicality as yet. As I said before, just in conclusion, you did take an interest in legal education. When I was on what is now the Society of Legal Scholars executive, we used to come in and see the permanent head of your department, but you always made time to come down and have lunch with us. And as legal academics, we always appreciated that. I'm going to throw it open to questions. Um, and uh, Lord Mackay has kindly agreed to try to answer any questions you might have. What I thought we might do is take two or three together and then we can, well, there's some very shy people here. Uh, yes, oh, Pro <coughs> Professor Collins. When you start, could you introduce yourself? Right, uh, Hugh Collins uh, from the Royal Department here at MSC. I our theme is about law officers and, in particular, the theme's uh, relationship between uh, the law officers and the politicians. And so I, I suppose the central question for us is how uncomfortable was it being a lawyer, a lawyer, a judge, and at the same time sitting in, in cabinet? And it, uh, well, I, I think something depends on the attitude of one's colleagues. I, I never had any difficulty at all uh, in uh, being there uh, as, uh, you know, knowing that I was a judge representing the judiciary in a way, uh, but uh, also taking part uh, in... Uh, the discussions in the cabinet. I, I didn't have much to say on politics, very, very little. Possibly the less I said, the better. 
Uh, I had been at cabinet meetings before uh, when that wasn't always the case um, <coughs> in the Lord Chancellor's uh, way of dealing with matters. But certainly, so far as I was concerned, uh, the less I said about politics on the whole, the better. John Major said at one point, I can't remember exactly what occasioned this, but he said he didn't want the Lord, the Lord Chancellor to be dealing with the nitty-gritty of party politics. Uh, principle, broad principles, yes. Uh, so I, I never really had any uh, difficulty, uh, and uh, I think colleagues, I think colleagues were just perhaps a little bit inhibited in criticising the judiciary uh, in, in cabinet. Just a little. They might say these decisions are expensive or something like that, but to say they were wrong or, uh, you know, they wouldn't just go that far. It's on the front here, Professor uh, I'll, I'll shout as well. Mm. Uh, Chris Greenwood, also from the Law Department here. Uh, Lord Mackay, how do you view the replacement of the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords by the new Supreme Court? Well, uh, Parliament has uh, decided that. Uh, and uh, I, personally, uh, I think there might have been a more innovative way of doing what they wanted to do in the way of separation. I have my own uh, ideas about what this all came out of, and I won't uh, weary you with that because it's not in really important. But I think the House of Lords, as uh, all of us know, has a unique place in the world as a judicial body. There is no other, there was no other body with that uh, type of reputation and name. It was unique. Now, if uh, I was a commercial operator with a brand name of that quality, I wouldn't be very willing to give it up, especially uh, to substitute it uh, with a name which is all over the world, and not only at the top court. I mean, the number of Supreme Courts in the United States uh, is, uh, well, it must be at least 51 or whatever, plus the Supreme Court. Uh, and um, so you're in a situation where Supreme Courts are, I wouldn't say to a penny, but pretty common. And uh, there are all sorts of varieties uh, and uh, qualities associated with different ones. And of course, they vary from time to time. Uh, and I, I'm sorry that that's gone. I, after all, we've got District Judge Magistrate's Court, which is a name I wasn't keen to adopt. Uh, I couldn't think of a better one, so I didn't adopt any for the time being, and they used that. But I think House of Lords Judicial could have been, or something like that, could have been done to keep it. But anyway, we've got it now. Oh, sorry, yes, up the back. Well, I think... Uh, one uh, has to have one's principles uh, in every walk of life uh, and uh, also one has to re remember that we're in a democracy with rules and my impression is that where questions of faith and religious practice are involved the legislature ought to proceed on the basis of a free vote on the consciences of the individuals who are voting. Uh, and that was the way that I thought 
uh, matters like, for example, Sunday observance and so on uh, should be resolved when there were obvious difficulties in the old law and some new law was required. And it's the same in relation to... We, we put that into a very uh, clear practice in the um, bill uh, dealing uh, with uh, human fertilization and embryology. I produced the first bill uh, I led in the Lords, because it's in the Lords we introduced it, the first bill dealing with that. And we made it absolutely clear that on all the issues involved, it was a free vote, uh, including research on embryos within the first four, nobody wanted it more than 14 days, but whether it should be allowed up to 14 days was a very um, critical question. And we had a free vote. Now, the difficulty, of course, of a free vote uh, is that uh, the two Houses of Parliament might come to a different conclusion. And then you're in a real problem. But fortunately, uh, it didn't happen. And I think this is the true way of dealing with this. And also, one has one's own principles. But you have to realize that you can't rule. I mean, if I'm a member of the cabinet, I can state my position. I can't decide what the cabinet's going to do. Uh, and uh, there may come questions about how far you can go in that direction. Uh, but uh, on the whole, uh, I was able to have my position uh, without uh, compromise uh, of my own principles, uh, so long as these matters were left to a free vote. Michael Thomas, uh, the Governor of the Silk. When you were Lord Chancellor, did you ever think about reforming the House of Lords? And now, when you look back, do you think you ought to have done Well, we did have uh, committees looking at reform of the House of Lords uh, when I was Lord Chancellor. Uh, and, and indeed before that, uh, but the difficulty was very much the same as the difficulty now. It, it's easy to think that it should be changed. It's not so easy to think what the change should be. And they're still uh, struggling with that. Uh, as you know, uh, in the House of Commons originally, there wasn't a majority for anything. And uh, more recently, by quite <coughs> sudden change, there was a pretty big majority for a completely elected House. Uh, and then uh, a reasonable majority for 80% elected. Uh, now, uh, just how satisfactory that will be, uh, and whether it's a, it's a, I mean, assuming it goes ahead, which so far, uh, at least uh, the progress has not been uh, spectacular, uh, the uh, difficulty is whether that kind of thing will be stable. Because if, if I'm elected to the House of Lords, you know, why should uh, I... Uh, be less powerful than the person, or more listened to than the person who's elected to the House of Commons. Well, uh, you say they start off with the rule that the Lords is to be subservient to the Commons. Well, if you do that, you wonder what the basis of the election will be. I'm a great, I'm a great reviser. I'm, you know, if you want to elect me, I'll be a great reviser of the law. Well, you can imagine that as a political <laughs> thing. It reminds me of. Um, Lord Burkett, when he came to the Cambridge Union, saying the difference between Diana of the Ephesians is great, and great as Diana of the Ephesians is the difference between a resolution and a revolution. And I think that's, uh, you know, if you're going to win an election in, in politics, you have to have a kind of theme that you stand for. 
And what you stand for if you want to be elected to the House of Lords, I'm not sure if, if it's going to be subservient to the House of Commons. On the other hand, once you grant elections and full, full elections to the House of Lords, uh, the, the dominance of the House of Commons uh, is going to be continuously under threat. And you see that, to some extent, illustrated by what's happening in devolution in Scotland. No sooner have they got that than they're wanting to consider other powers and so on. And the Prime Minister, when he spoke in Scotland, said certain of the aspects of devolution are unsatisfactory. Well, that's what some people want to hear. I saw two more hands, one here, yeah, and then there. So let's have them both together. Yes, shout. Yes. Just give us your name so we know. said independence is a cast of mind you can't rule I mean you can get you can have all sorts of rules in place and if you have a sycophant or somebody who doesn't have principles of his own it doesn't do any good you know if, if, if you're the Prime Minister you want this although there are all sorts of rules you can expect that he'll go along with it but I think the point is that a person who is chosen as a law officer ought to be chosen on the basis that he's of a character and a background which will make him make decisions of his own. And I, I honestly think that it's a great detraction from the standing of politicians if they conclude that there's nobody that they can have trust in to do that. And if they can't trust a lawyer, a qualified lawyer, any qualified lawyer to do that. It causes me to doubt whether they can be trusted to take independent decisions in planning matters and the rest. And I, I think that the more they shout about uh, the difficulty of being independent as the Attorney General, the more it causes me to think difficult for them to decide without political uh, considerations being paramount in their mind.
the, the United States has a trial lawyer as a distinct part of the system, really, including their own college and so on. The, the trend, generally speaking, in the professions is towards specialization, and advocacy is a particular type of specialization, uh, and conveyancing, if you like, is, is a specialization of a different sort. There are two problems here. The first problem is whether uh, a solicitor who is willing to be qualified, take the training and so on, shouldn't have a right of audience. That's one problem. And that seems to me to be capable of very easy answer in principle. Then whether a solicitor uh, who has rights of audience needs to be separate from uh, a barrister is a question. That's a separate question. And that's something that's developed more since, since I was involved. I, I was involved primarily at the first stage. Uh, and uh, it's now been uh, opened up. And of course, as you know, there are other business models being considered. I think you'll find them all at least envisaged in the green papers. Uh, but not uh, gone for, as it were. We didn't, I mean, the Green Papers were consultation documents without final decision. But the, the question of whether barristers should set up as barristers uh, in uh, partnership with solicitors or in their offices as employees is a separate question. Uh, and uh, I think that it's a little bit more difficult to see what the principle should be in that connection. I mean, I remember when I was Lord Chancellor, a young lady coming to me who wanted to take part in a joint operation with American attorneys uh, when it wasn't possible for a barrister to take part in that. And she said she was going to retire from the bar and take part in this operation and when it was finished she would hope to come back to the bar again. Well, when you hear that sort of thing you begin to wonder, you know, if the rules are rather artificial and whether there may be safeguards you have to have in place but uh, let's see how it would work. Well, look, I think I'll draw to a close. Um, just finally, could I ask, of all these different careers, lecturer in mathematics, uh, member of the bar, advocate, uh, Lord Advocate, Lord Chancellor, post-Lord Chancellor, which do you look back with, with most, most pleasure, as it were? Which did you enjoy most? Or all? Yes, I think, I, I think it's fair to say I enjoy, enjoyed them all. I, I very much enjoyed uh, teaching mathematics when I was in St Andrews, uh, you know, in my youth. Uh, the, the, uh, the students were, were interested and uh, I had an interesting experience in that connection, uh, which is perhaps an answer to your question. When I was Lord Chancellor, the Independent, I think it was, decided to publish a profile of me. And uh, they must have mentioned this uh, fact that I was uh, a uh, lecturer in mathematics in St Andrews. Anyway, I got a letter from a gentleman who had been a student of mine in St Andrews. And he said that he had still had the notes of the lectures that I gave that he attended. And he had taught mathematics all his life in a school and he used these notes still. Well, you know, that made, that made me feel that uh, my time as a teaching mathematics wasn't altogether uh, wasted. I think uh, the students in the audience ought to take note of this. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, 
I mean, I had very interesting cases too as, a, as an advocate. And then as a judge, I had interesting cases, both as low chancellor judging and otherwise. Um, so I, I find it, I mean, I really uh, feel very uh, conscious of my own shortcomings, but uh, very uh, grateful for the opportunity to have had some part in these different aspects of professional life. Well, we're extremely grateful to you for coming along tonight, giving your time. Um, and so thanks very much indeed.